0: Hey folks, my name is Ike Morgan and we are Down in Alabama. Now, we're literally Down in Alabama, covering as much news as we can from Lookout Mountain to Mobile Bay, and Down in Alabama is also the name of our show. We spend about three to five minutes daily going over a handful of news and culture stories that are a mix of the top stories and maybe the most overlooked stories and sometimes just the most Alabama stories of the day. Now, there's not a strict definition of what the most Alabama stories of the day are, but you know them when you see them. So y'all come on by and give us a listen and bring a sense of humor because we take the news seriously, but not ourselves. The show is called Down in Alabama, and we're available wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is the final episode of Outbreak Alabama for the foreseeable future. It does not mean the show is done for good. We might even return sooner than later for some special episodes. We'll call it the season finale. More from me after today's show. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic.
1: The good news in all of this is that this is simple. This is Public Health 101. It's not complicated. It's easy to understand, and I bet everybody listening to this could quote line and verse what the mantra is for mitigating the transmission, wearing a mask, keeping distance, avoiding large crowds, trying to keep things outdoors as much as possible. Everybody knows that. So why are we not doing it?
0: Today we hear from Dr. Michael Sage, a physician of the Division of Infectious Disease at UAB. Saig, who worked to educate the public about COVID-19 early during the pandemic, tested positive for the disease in March. He has since recovered and said he felt even more connected to his patients because of it. It was right before his own diagnosis last spring that he warned, in an AL.com op-ed, that Alabama was not prepared for the onslaught to come of COVID-19. Since then, the state has had 174,528 confirmed cases and 2,805 deaths, according to the Alabama Department of Public Health, today, October 21, 2020. I spoke to Dr. Michael Sage about a range of topics related to COVID-19, including why wearing masks saves lives, why he's hopeful but not optimistic about the vaccine timeline, how treatments have evolved dramatically, why we are failing to contain the disease, how the pandemic was politicized, and why, in spite of everything, he remains encouraged about the future of Alabama. I'm
1: Michael Sag. I'm a physician and professor of infectious diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I live in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: Alabama added more than 1,000 coronavirus cases overnight, and we've had almost 175,000 cases since March, more than 2,800 deaths, and it wasn't long ago that you compared our situation to the bombing of London when people hunkered down to stay safe unless they absolutely had to go out. But here we are in late October with these numbers and compounding the pandemic with flu season. Why don't we as a community have a handle on this virus? What are we doing wrong? I'll have
1: to say the first thing is that we have failed leadership. And mostly I mean that in terms of consistency of messaging and trusted voices. We are taking shots at one another in ways that are not only not healthy, but are destructive. We can't get our arms around the epidemic because we don't have a single voice saying to us, here are the facts. Here's what we need to do. To go back to the bombing of London analogy, we don't have a Winston Churchill who's galvanizing us, who's pulling us together to fight a common enemy. Rather, we're fighting amongst ourselves and that's a killing field for the virus.
0: Governor Ivey extended the mask order until at least November 8th, but I go to campus in Tuscaloosa to cover a game day, and I'd guess about half of the people there are wearing masks and distancing. The other half are not, and they, they don't seem to care. People are packing bars and restaurants where they take them off and eat and drink and Grocery stores and other businesses are not all enforcing the mask order. And I just want to make this clear. Why do masks work in fighting this disease? And should we extend the order until this virus is contained by every metric?
1: So I want to commend Governor Avi for having the courage to issue that mask order back in July because it really worked. So how do the how do the masks work? It's really pretty simple. Somebody who has the infection is spewing clouds of virus into the environment around them every time they breathe. And that virus goes out another three feet or so when they're talking and even further if they're cheering or screaming or singing. And so that cloud of virus hovers around them each time they breathe. And if you're in the environment near them, you will breathe that in and you'll become infected. The longer you're in exposure to that virus or that cloud, the higher the likelihood of that virus infecting you. And also the closer proximity you are to the person who's the source putting the virus out there, the more likely you will pick it up as well. And then additionally, the the longer time. So what does a mask do? It basically keeps that cloud from forming. It blocks the virus at the mouth and at the nose and keeps it from polluting the area around them if they are infected. And remember, about 25 to 30 percent of people who have the virus don't know it and therefore spewing it inadvertently to somebody who might actually get symptoms as opposed to that person who's asymptomatic. The second thing that masks do is for the person wearing the mask, it will reduce the volume or the intensity of the virus that they would breathe in by blocking some of the virus from entering into their body. But it's not sufficient. You need both people wearing a mask, the source person and the person who could become infected. So the mask itself does a lot, but you have to add to it the distancing. I call it physical distancing of at least six to eight feet from person to person. And you also want to be outdoors As opposed to indoors because the cloud dissipates a lot more when you're outdoors and finally you want to avoid large crowds where people are together because the more people you have in a small space the higher the likelihood is that one out of that group actually has the virus you put that all together and that's a pretty strong mitigation strategy that we know works not just from prior pandemics but we know works from this pandemic looking at other countries that have had success.
0: You mentioned this a little bit ago, but I want to ask you about how we have politicized a pandemic. And there are public officials out there calling masks a symbol of government control over the masses and that it's time to return to a reliance on true science without continuing on a path of hysteria and fear. So people are familiar with the president's and others' rhetoric as it relates to downplaying this deadly disease, it seems like our perception of reality has sort of been infected when people categorize something like COVID-19 as a political issue where you have to take a side. How do we beat this if scientists and healthcare professionals are undermined and marginalized?
1: There have been a lot of victims of this disease. The most prominent are the 220,000 people who have already died from it, not to mention the 8 million or so in the country who have been sick from it, and including myself. But another silent victim of this pandemic in the United States is the trusted voice. It's been assassinated. And you see that every day in the news media and in, in political circles, there are shots taken at people who we ordinarily listen to and trust. And so we can't get the scientific message out there because the voices that are trying to rationally give it the information to us are attacked. And when you have that going on, the people who support the attackers say, well, that person deserves it because the person I'm pulling for, the person whose side I'm on, is demonizing them. And that undermines everything that we need to do as a country to get the epidemic under control. The good news in all of this is that this is simple. This is public health 101. It's not complicated. It's easy to understand. And I bet everybody listening to this could quote line and verse what the mantra is for, for mitigating the transmission, wearing a mask, keeping distance, avoiding large crowds, trying to keep things outdoors as much as possible. Everybody knows that. So why are we not doing it? It's because of the politicalization, and it's it's the death of the trusted voice, and it's also the attack on science because in the, in the notion of liberty, well, we wear seatbelts when we drive cars. Isn't that imposing uh, the government on liberty? Sort of. But it does so for the sake of public health. And you could argue even more so with a seatbelt that that's imposing on somebody who's who's wearing it because that's to protect the person's life who's wearing the seatbelt. But yet we we have laws that say wear a seatbelt. Why? Because if that person gets injured in an accident, the rest of us end up having to pay for the injury, which would be much more severe if that person got injured. If you want to just take it to that point, here as I described earlier, wearing a mask. It does protect the person wearing it some, but what it's really doing is it's protecting the people around that individual, and that's why it's a public health intervention that we should take full advantage of. But because of politics and the lack of clear, consistent, sober leadership, we're suffering.
0: You're right. People have known about these things for months now, really since March and and early April. And some people are doing everything they can to do their part to mitigate this. But it almost feels like there are others who don't want to take the necessary steps to mitigate it. And, And they simply want to ride it out until there's a vaccine and that'll solve the problem overnight. But outlets are reporting that, you know, some states have no idea how they're even going to pay for the vaccine distribution. Plus, there's this perception of the vaccine being fast tracked for political purposes. But experts, you know, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, they've said that the FDA will not let politics interfere with the approval process. What is your level of optimism right now about a covid vaccine and, and what does a timeline for it look like today?
1: So I'm hopeful, but I'm not confident. And the reason I'm not confident is that I've worked for years on an AIDS vaccine. And if you remember back to 1984, public health officials said in a public announcement, we will, quote, have an AIDS vaccine in two years. Well, it's been 36 years, and we still don't have one, despite having wonderful candidates that did all the things that you'd want to see in terms of correlates of immunity, getting antibody, getting T cell immunity stimulated. But when the rubber met the road and the clinical trials were done asking the question, does this vaccine protect? someone from becoming infected, every single one of them so far has failed. So now we have multiple candidates that are in clinical trials right now to see whether those immune responses that are pretty robust in the phase one and two studies, whether those immune responses translate into protection when it's really tested out. We'll find out. So that's part one. Part two is will it work and how soon will it be available if it does? And that really depends on how robust the response is. And nobody's really talking about this, but let me go into that. For the vaccine to be released and sent to the FDA for approval sometime before the 1st of 2021, it has to be working like gangbusters. It has to be 95% effective for it to be released that early. Why? Because for the clinical trial to for this vaccine to make it out, it has to pass muster so that a data safety monitoring board that oversees the outcomes declares it so effective that they stop the study early. They say there's no chance that this outcome of protection was an accident, was a fluke. So that requires for stopping this early, 95%. If it doesn't meet that, that's not the end of the world. It just means the study continues into the first quarter of 2021, and they'll take another look. Then it might have to be 80 to 85 percent effective. But if it's not, the study continues on into the summer of 21. And then maybe if it's 70 percent effective, they'll release it. That's okay. I'll take a vaccine that's 70 percent effective right now. But nobody's talking about the conditions around the early release of the vaccine. And I think that's essential for everybody to understand. The third part that's a little bit sobering when you think about all this is the notion of how often will a vaccine have to be given. And so we know that even people like myself who have had the infection, my immunity wanes within four to six months and I had the infection, not a vaccine. So that means that people are going to have to be revaccinated frequently, I would guess on the order of once every six months or once a year, if the vaccine, if we're lucky enough for it to work. So there's a lot of complications there. And the final point that you mentioned is distribution. I believe if we have an effective vaccine, the federal government will support funding the distribution. But the people who get in line to get the vaccine have to believe and have to understand how the vaccine works and how it was evaluated. Rushing it through for political pur- purposes might get something out there, but it's terribly counterproductive because nobody will trust the result. We have to do this the right way.
0: We'll be right back. What is different about how patients with COVID are treated now compared to when this all started. How have therapeutics and care evolved since March in Alabama?
1: It's pretty dramatically different and the outcomes are much better. If you think about it, back in March, we didn't know hardly anything about this virus. We didn't know the natural course of infection. We didn't have anything really that was proven to work for treatment. And we went through a couple fits and starts with hydroxychloroquine and and azithromycin and a few other things that at best had a marginal impact, but not much. Then we got a a drug called remdesivir in the first part of May, and it works, but not great. I think the big game changers so far have been the use of steroids in hospitalized patients, dexamethasone. That definitely reduces mortality and shortens hospital stay. And more recently, what the president received, these monoclonal antibodies when given relatively early in the course seem to underscore that work in terms of reducing virus. And that, that treatment was given in conjunction with remdesivir. So two antivirals together. And that together is on the therapeutic front is helping us. But there's a subtle, very important other benefit that patients today have that the people in March didn't. And that's the collective experience of providers, especially for hospitalized patients. We have learned when not to intubate, when not to put people on a ventilator. We found in retrospect, We were putting people on ventilators a little bit too quickly, and that was actually harming them and leading to more death than maybe was necessary. Now, we only go to ventilation, uh, mechanical ventilation as a very last resort, so we don't have nearly as many people on ventilators, and the outcomes seem to be better, plus all the ancillary support that we have. So, it's not good to get this infection. Trust me, I had it. You don't want it. It's a nightmare, literally. It's a horrible experience. But if you do get it and you do get sick enough where you have to go in the hospital, our treatments are much better and our knowledge about how to treat patients is much better, and that gives everybody an increased chance of better survival.
0: So as someone who actually had COVID-19, how did it change your own perspective as an infectious disease expert and understanding and treating the disease? Like, I guess I wonder if an orthopedic surgeon breaks his leg Does that make any sort of difference in how they approach their practice? Like, I know that you said during the summer that you have felt more connected with your patients. Like, so what has your experience taught you about what you do?
1: The first thing that I think I experienced that I think every patient who has symptoms experience is the horror of not knowing what's next. That's the worst part of having the infection. Sure, I felt bad. Yes, I had fever. Yes, I had body aches. I had cough and shortness of breath. But the thing that plagued me, the thing that scared me was not knowing what the next hour was going to bring. Was I going to get worse and start getting very short of breath and not be able to breathe and have to be rushed to the hospital? Or was I going to sort of slip by through that night and make it to the next morning and be okay? And that unknown is terribly frightening. And every patient listening to this will immediately know exactly what I'm talking about. And for those people who have not had this, who have the fortune of not having had COVID, trust me, you do not want to have that experience. So it's quite a bit different than breaking your leg. This is facing the consequences of an unknown course of disease because there is no typical course for this infection everybody's experience is different. You look at Chris Christie, who went into the ICU for seven days, and contrast that with the president, who was fortunate enough to get out of the hospital in four days. No way to predict that in advance. And I think if we ask the president at an honest moment, how did it feel, I think he would echo what I just said, that this was a frightening experience. It is. So nobody wants to get it. We want to prevent people from getting it. Even if you're a young person, you don't know if you're going to get symptoms or not. And while it's uncommon to the point of being rare, we've seen young people dying of this infection, too.
0: So other than the numbers that we're also accustomed to seeing daily in Alabama now in, in terms of like confirmed cases and deaths, The big COVID story last week was the news that Nick Saban tested positive, right? But after three straight days of negative tests, he's thought to have had a false positive. But it raised questions about not only testing, but also sort of the optics of not adhering to what we understand as like the 10-day quarantine or the 14-day exposure window quarantine, where some saw the rules applying to regular folks, especially kids in our schools throughout the state, but not perhaps powerful college football coaches everyone wants to see on the sideline, right? Did you have any concerns about that? Or do you just consider this specific situation to be a false positive?
1: I think in his case, it was definitely a false positive. And what's different about him in that situation than the average person besides Nick Saban is that he had access to frequent testing. And, most of us don't so if any of us had tested positive like that we would have probably stopped there and gone into isolation for 10 days even if we didn't have symptoms and that would have been that but in his case he got tested three more times and there's no way at his age that without symptoms he would test positive in negative three days in a row that just wouldn't happen so almost certainly that first test was erroneous and, yes, there were motivations because of football and he's a head coach that they wanted to get him through that to confirm. But I promise you, if if that second test had been also positive, he wouldn't have been on the field, and he would have been in, in isolation for the required 10 days. There's no doubt about it. But I think there's another very important message about Nick Saban's story that gets back to an earlier question you asked, and that is, I can't think of anyone who's more meticulous or disciplined than Nick Saban. This guy, you give him a rule, he's going to follow it. And he's going to do it, in my opinion, the right way as best he can every time, just like he coaches every player to play the next play as best they can. I can't imagine that he let his guard down much or that he didn't wear a mask when he needed to. And yet, The possibility of him becoming infected is still very real. And he could have become infected because of the world around us. As we said earlier, if other people are not complying, the mask only does so much. And that's why we have to say we're in this together. This is a collective experience, just like the bombing of London during the Blitz. Whether we like it or not, we've been invaded by a virus and we can elect to fight it together or we can remain pulled apart for whatever reason. We need to pull together on this. Follow the science. Be committed to doing what we need to do. And yes, there is COVID fatigue. I feel it. I'm tired of this too. I'm tired of having to wear a mask and not doing the things I want to do and not traveling like I want to and all the things that were, all of our lives have been turned upside down. We can't change that by simply ignoring it or denying it. We have to take it head on. And the irony is the sooner we pull together on this and get our numbers down to manageable levels, the sooner we can get back to what we consider more of a normal life. But to deny it and go to bars without masks and to go to restaurants indoors and, and, and celebrate life the way we used to while this virus is still out there, is a deadly mistake. And what, for the life of me, I can't understand is why that message is so hard to comprehend and turn into action, except for the politicalization of the issue like we talked about earlier and just plain out denial and fatigue. Sorry, I didn't choose this virus, none of us did. What we we can do is choose how we're gonna deal with this. And like I said, if we do this together, we can gain a foothold. But if we stay the way we are right now, we're going to remain victims of this virus from now, even through a vaccine, because a vaccine is not going to be a hundred percent.
0: What are the warning signs we should watch out for ahead of any potential winter surge? You just said it. People are anxious for more normalcy, right? As the year goes on. They want to spend holidays together and I'm sure many people will, regardless of any guidelines or restrictions. What is your message to people as they prepare for a different holiday season? Respect,
1: respect this virus and do the things that you know work to protect your family. We wanna get together for Thanksgiving, I do, but we shouldn't gather in more than eight to 10 people. and. Unless we know for sure that everybody's not infected, we should try to wear masks if we don't know where our loved ones have been. But even if we choose, 10 people would be about my limit on how many people should be in a room together, especially indoors. But we can we can do the right things. We can start bringing this under control if we just commit ourselves to doing all the stuff we know works.
0: So my last question for you is often my last question. When I talk to people about COVID, especially experts uh, like you, what is encouraging you about the pandemic right now? There's obviously a lot to be worried about and anxious about, and hopefully people uh, keep their eye on the ball as it relates to, to mitigating this and fighting it. But these last several months up to now and, and what you're seeing today, what is making you feel a little bit better about it right now?
1: Two things. First and foremost, the science. This has not been an amazing time. I mean, you asked the question earlier, what's different between March and now? And I went through those advances, and there's still more coming. Everything we learned about treating viral infections during the AIDS epidemic or hepatitis C, it's all right there, and we've dug right into it, and we've used it immediately and converted it into practice that is saving lives and that science is going to continue. The whole vaccine development, people realize this, but on January 10th, the sequence of this virus was released from China to the world. On January 12th, Tony Fauci and his group at NIH at the National Vaccine Center had created the first vaccine candidate in two days. That's the Moderna vaccine, by the way. Two days! Contrast that to what I lived through and worked through the AIDS epidemic. June of 81 was first described. We didn't know what caused it until March of 83. We didn't have a test until May of 85. And we didn't have the first treatment until the summer of 87. That's six years. In six months, we've accomplished more than that against this virus. So the science gives me enormous hope. And despite Some of the tone of what I said earlier, the second thing is that I believe in us. I still believe in us. And I think if we're led in the proper way with consistent messaging, we will rally around the cause and we will make a difference together. But we have to have consistent, clear leadership that gives us a message that's straightforward, honest, and followable. And if we do that and everybody comes together, We can gain the upper hand on the virus, but until then, we're going to be left wallowing in this quagmire until we can get our messaging straight.
0: Dr. Sage, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you to Dr. Sage. And the many others whose expertise, experience, and generosity have made 60 episodes of the Outbreak Alabama podcast possible. I am grateful for your time and insight during what remains one of the most unpredictable and sometimes very frightening periods of our lives. There is no end in sight with COVID-19. This pandemic will impact literally every single person on this planet for at least the next year. The timeline on a vaccine is unclear and whether or not everyone will receive it is even murkier. So I know we have a long way to go with this, but the podcast needs an indefinite break, partially to focus on a few other projects for AL.com. I am not exaggerating when I say it's been a fascinating experience talking to experts like Dr. Seig and his colleague, Dr. Jeannie Marazzo at UAB. It's been an honor to speak to other healthcare professionals, putting their lives on the line to fight this disease and to take care of our loved ones. And business owners whose livelihoods are at stake because of it. Or people who have either contracted COVID and lived to tell about it, or others petrified of catching it because they have underlying health conditions that make them vulnerable to the illness. And my colleagues at AL.com, who have worked painstakingly every single day since mid-March to bring you crucial information to keep you informed on this pandemic and how it impacts our state. Thanks to all of you for committing that time and working to help us understand what is happening right now. And thanks to anyone who has listened. We hear it all the time. These are uncertain times, and it's true. We can't find a better way to describe it. I'm shocked that I have to say this in late October, more than seven months since this pandemic became real and touched all of us one way or another. But COVID-19 is real. It is deadly, and it is not going away anytime soon. And that fear and anxiety that people have about it is real, and we should respect those who are vulnerable. Anyone could be vulnerable to it. The virus is still that new, that's why they call it novel. I just hope that people take it seriously. Like Dr. Sage said, containing COVID nineteen is relatively simple. Wearing a mask and physical distancing saves lives. I've said it before on this show. It's not about you, it's not about me. I want to go see my family. I want to eat in a restaurant, I want to go see a movie or fly cross-country, but I can't. There is a deadly pandemic, and we have to help each other through it by following the rules recommended by scientists and doctors who want to end this and save lives. It's already lasted longer than it ever should have. So please be safe, be smart, be kind, and be considerate of other people who need your compassion. Good luck to all of you. If you or anyone you know is affected by coronavirus and want to share your story, please email bflanagan at al.com. That's B-F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N at al.com. For all of our coverage on the outbreak and how it continues to impact Alabama, visit al.com slash coronavirus. If you like the show, please rate us and write a review. Thank you for listening.